Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Today, uh, we're going to have a special guest, Mike Gendron, on the show. We've talked with Mike Gendron before. Uh, that is Mike Gendron of ProclaimingTheGospel.org. Uh, Mike is a former Roman Catholic and has a, a ministry, ProclaimingTheGospel.org, uh, witnessing and reaching out to Roman Catholics as well as equipping the saints on how to, to um, answer these tough questions about Roman Catholicism. Uh, friends, many people believe that Roman Catholicism is Christianity. It's just another denomination. Uh, but as we have seen in many of the, well, I've done a few series in the, in the past on Roman Catholicism. We've talked about the beliefs of Roman Catholicism. Uh, they do not believe by sal on, on salvation by grace through faith. Uh, that it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. In fact, in, in the Council of Trent, they declared that people who believe that uh, in salvation alone by, by grace through faith are anathema, accursed. They can't be saved. All right. Uh, we've found that Roman Catholics attain salvation through uh, the sacraments, through works, basically. Uh, we've also seen that they have traditions. That's what we're going to be talking about today. They don't just rely on Scripture alone. Uh, you know that old saying, sola scriptura, uh, Scripture alone. No, they actually rely on Scripture and traditions and words from uh, the magisterium uh, or the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church. Today we're going to be talking with Mike Gendron. Again, he is an expert on uh, the belief system of Roman Catholicism, really knows his stuff. As we've seen last time, we talked to him about uh, the Eucharist and uh, transubstantiation. Today we're going to be talking about tradition and its role in the Roman Catholic Church. So with that, Mike Gendron, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. It's good to be back with you, Michael. So, friends, today we're going to be talking about Roman Catholicism and uh, tradition. See, uh, it, as far as Protestant faith goes, or, uh, or rather, Christianity as taught by the Bible, uh, we believe that Scripture alone uh, is sufficient for all of our faith and doctrine. Uh, in fact, 2 Timothy 3.16-17, through 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this is key, that the man of God may be perfect, perfect, thoroughly furnished or equipped unto all good works. Uh, that is uh, where Mike and I are coming from today, but that is not the case as far as Roman Catholic beliefs. Uh, they add tradition uh, into the mix. So tradition plus scripture uh, make up a, uh, what they refer to as a sacred deposit of their faith. Uh, in fact, they, they argue this way. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, paragraph 77, they say the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. That's paragraph 77. Paragraph 78, this living transmission accomplished through the Holy Spirit is called tradition. And lastly, paragraph 82, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal, equal sentiments 
of demo, devotion and reverence. So, so Mike, what is tradition according to the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, what is this sacred deposit of faith? Well, Michael, probably the first thing we have to consider is that ultimately everybody puts their faith in something. And so we have to ask the question, what is or who is the most trustworthy source for truth? How do we know what we're trusting in is true? Where do we go for that source? And so there are people who would put their trust in popes and bishops and church councils. Others would put their trust in religious traditions. Some even put their trust in church history or church fathers, believing that as Catholics that theirs is the one true church because of church history and church fathers. Others actually trust their reasoning or their experience. They look inward instead of outward for their source for truth. And we know that the only trustworthy source for truth would be God's inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. We know that God cannot lie. Jesus Christ is the personification of truth. He came to this earth declaring that he is the truth, that his word is truth. And he said, I came to testify to the truth. And so when we look to Christ and his word, we know that we can trust that authority because it is pure truth. Now, when you start adding different things to that particular source, being scripture, then you have to choose which of those authorities would be the most trustworthy. And clearly, you've already quoted Second Timothy chapter 3.16, showing that Scripture is sufficient, but we also know that Scripture is the supreme authority in all matters of truth and faith, because there is no higher authority than God, and He has revealed Himself through His Word. And so if we want to know the supreme authority for truth, we go directly to the Word of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul encouraged the Bereans when he was teaching in the synagogues of Berea. They were checking his teaching with the Scripture to find out if what an apostle was teaching was true. And so this clearly shows that Scripture has an authority over even an apostle who wrote over half of the New Testament. They were testing what Paul said with the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so that is just a great principle for all of us to follow, no matter who's teaching, no matter what is said on this radio broadcast, we have to be going to the scriptures to prove what you and I say is true. And if our listeners find what we say is not true, then they need to reject it, but they need to use scripture as the only authority in which to reject it. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. So, um what what do Roman Catholics mean by sacred uh, uh, deposit of faith? Well, they they actually have three different authorities, and they include Scripture as one of their authorities, but they also include sacred tradition, and that would be all of the Roman Catholic traditions that have evolved over the last 1,600 years. But then they even go so far as to say that their bishops, which is called the Magisterium of the Church, that they are another equal authority, and they are the only ones that can interpret the Word of God. 
And so when you look at these three equal authorities, according to the Roman Catholic religion, in reality, in actual practicality, it is the bishops that sit above Scripture and tradition, such that they twist and distort the Scripture in order to make their tradition coincide or harmonize with the Scripture. And so... Um, I would not go so far as to call the Roman Catholic Church a cult, but they do have some cultic characteristics. And this would be one, that they have to believe whatever their bishops teach about the interpretation of Scripture. In other words, an individual Catholic in the pew cannot be a good Berean because he has to believe what the bishops teach instead of testing what they teach with the supreme authority of Scripture. And so that's how Roman Catholic tradition has evolved over the last 1,600 years. They pretty much can make up extra-biblical traditions and add them to their deposit of sacred tradition. And, Michael, it's really tragic, but the Roman Catholic religion dares to say that their tradition is the Word of God. And so a couple of the traditions that have been added in the last hundred years or so would be the Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1854 and then her miraculous bodily assumption into heaven in 1950. Well, clearly these two infallible dogmas are not found in Scripture, So the Catholic Church has gone outside of Scripture with their sacred tradition and then dares to say that it is the Word of God. Hmm. Uh, Okay, and so as I was studying uh, Roman Catholic doctrine, uh, this idea of sacred deposit was a little bit new to me, and I got the impression that this was supposed to have come straight from Christ and his apostles. Uh, But as you're as you're talking here, it sounds like many of these doctrines were not there as far as Roman Catholicism uh, is concerned from the very beginning, but rather were revealed and somewhat evolved as time went on. Well, that's true. In fact, in paragraph 81 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says, Tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God. It transmits it to the successors of the Apostles, so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. And so the Word of God, according to the Catholic Church, was not signed, sealed, and delivered in the first century church, but they continue to add to it. And we know the curses in the Bible for anyone that adds to the Word of God. We also see what Jude wrote in verse 3 of his epistle, that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. So when Jude wrote that in the first century, he is declaring that our faith that we are to protect and preserve was delivered to the saints in the first century, and that nothing can be added to it, In fact, if anything is added to it, we are to contend earnestly against it. So we Mm -hmm. have this body of truth that we call the faith of a Christian that was delivered in the first century. Roman Catholicism continues to expound their tradition and daring to say that it is the Word of God, which is false. 
what types of doctrines come from these traditions? Well, we actually publish a track called Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition, and in that track we actually show the evolution of Roman Catholic tradition over the last 1,600 years. And it starts with, in the year 431, the Catholic Church declared that baptism is the sacrament of regeneration. In other words, the waters of baptism are efficacious in bringing to life those sinners who are dead in their sin. They also declared it to be the sacrament of justification. And, of course, this goes directly against Scripture because we know that regeneration is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, and that Mm -hmm. justification is by faith, not by water baptism. So then in the year 500, the Mass was instituted as a reenactment of the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is where the priest is said to have the power to call Jesus Christ down from heaven and to be represented as a sacrificial victim on their altars. This, of course, goes directly against many scriptures, especially Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, which declares that Jesus died once for all sin, for all time, and there are no more offerings for sin. And then we have the attendance of Mass was made mandatory under the penalty of mortal sin in the year 1000. We have rosary, repetitious praying with beads, instituted by uh, the Catholic Church in 1079. We have the celibacy of the priesthood decreed by Pope Gregory the Seventh. And then in the year 1190, or the 11th century, the granting of indulgences was established to reduce time in a place called purgatory. And if people that are listening don't know what purgatory is, it's the place where Catholics go after they die to have their sins purged away by fire, thus denying that the blood of Jesus Christ is efficacious in purifying all sin. We see that in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. We have another tradition in 1215 A.D., the Declaration of Transubstantiation, which gives the priest power to change the inner substance into the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see, Michael, a lot of these traditions that have been added go directly against the gospel as well as the Word of God. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> I'm on your website, proclaimingthegospel.org. Again, that's uh, proclaimingthegospel.org. And uh, which uh, uh, book were you just... It, it was a booklet. Which the booklet, booklet were you called quoting Roman from? Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition. It's our most okay. popular gospel track. 16 panels that you can unfold, and it's got two paths to eternity on there, which is excellent when you witness to Roman Catholics, because it shows the Roman Catholic path to eternity right alongside the biblical path to eternity. And every time I show the Roman Catholic path to a Catholic, he says, yes, this is what we believe, that we are born into this world, destined for hell because of the original sin of Adam, but then through water baptism, we're placed on the road to heaven, but we don't receive eternal life. It's only conditional life because 
during our lifetime, if we commit a mortal sin, then we're once again destined for hell, and we must do good works, confess to a priest, do indulgences, and merit the graces necessary for eternal life before we can get back on the road to heaven. And as a Catholic of over 30 years, I went through that cycle hundreds of times, never knowing where I stood before a holy and righteous God. You show the contrast, you show the biblical path to eternity, and it's not water baptism, but it's faith in Christ. That very moment you are justified, declared righteous by God in heaven, and then you are given the assurance of eternal life, such that you never have to fear hell again. Because of the great promise we see in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the biblical path gives the repentant sinner the assurance that he will spend eternity with his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we show that to Roman Catholics, we also share with them the verse out of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where John writes these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that they may know right here and now that they have in their present possession, eternal, everlasting life. And so that eternal life is backed up by the power and the promise of God, and no one can defeat the power, and God cannot break his promise. So that's why we have the assurance of eternal life, when we repent and believe the glorious gospel of grace. Amen. Amen. So you mentioned many different doctrines that come from these traditions. Um, is there any scrit- scriptural support for any of these traditions, or is this, um, for the most part, just doctrines of men? Well, the Roman Catholic Church will point to several different scriptures in defense of their traditions. And one of them would be Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, mm-hmm. where Paul writes, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And so here you see Paul is encouraging his readers to stand firm and hold to which traditions? The ones that were already taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from the apostles. And so this, of course, is something that we hold to as Christians because these were traditions delivered by the Apostle Paul and the apostles. And then we also see in 1 Corinthians 11:2, Paul writes, Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And so once mm-hmm. again we see the traditions have already been delivered and they've been delivered by the Apostle Paul. So this does not give credence for the Roman Catholic traditions that came after the apostles died. There are no successors of the apostles. In fact, um, in a sense, there was only two apostles that were added to the original twelve, and one was because Judas committed suicide and the eleven got together to choose another one, And then the Apostle Paul was chosen by God to be an apostle. So those are the only two, quote-unquote, successors of the original 12 apostles. So the Roman Catholic Church errs in its doctrine of 
apostolic succession, the criteria for becoming an apostle was given in Acts chapter 1, where the 11 apostles got together to determine which one would succeed Judas, and they listed the criteria, and you had to be an eyewitness to the life and resurrection of Christ, and of course, none of Roman Catholic bishops qualify for that, because that event took place historically in the first century church. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that goes uh, against many that believe, well, many of the Word of Faith crowd and New Apostolic Reformation that also believe there are apostles and prophets for today. That's true. Yeah, there are no more apostles. Uh, The last one was the Apostle Paul. And, you know, you asked a question about Roman Catholic traditions, and there are a number of them that we don't find in Scripture, which once again proves the point that they are not apostolic traditions, and we are to contend against them, as Jude, verse 3, exhorts us to do. But we see Roman Catholic traditions practiced today, priests offering sacrifices for sins. Well, when you look at the history book of the first century church, which is the book of Acts, we never find any priest offering a sacrifice for sin, and that's because Jesus Christ the perfect high priest offered himself the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God who demands perfection, and then he declared in victory, it is finished. So there are no more priests necessary. The Roman Catholic priesthood is superfluous. They are false priests or counterfeit priests, and they are unnecessary. And then we see another Catholic tradition, the indulgences remitting punishment for sin. You don't find that in the book of Acts, nor do you find anyone praying for souls in purgatory. You don't find church leaders forbidden to marry, which is another Roman Catholic tradition. In fact, um, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul asked the question, don't we have a right to take along a believing wife? And Michael, he even goes so far as to say in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith following doctrines of demons. And then he declares one of those doctrines is forbidding people to marry. So the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of celibacy for its clergy members is a doctrine of the devil. Mm. We also see another tradition, infallible men or popes. You never see those in the first century church, nor do you see salvation dispensed through the sacraments. The reason Roman Catholics never know if they're saved or not is because salvation is a process. They receive installments of saving grace, they are told, through the sacraments. But we know from the Bible you receive salvation instantly. You are born again the moment you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you see rosary scapulars and holy waters, crucifixes and statues. None of those were found in the first century church, and nor do we find the church headquartered in Rome. In fact, the first church, Michael, was the church in Jerusalem. And so if Catholics want to trace their history back to the church in Rome, well, they are way off 
because the church was established at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Right, right. Um, One of the things you mentioned was apostolic succession. Uh, What is that, and what scriptures would Roman Catholics use to support uh, that particular doctrine? Well, apostolic succession is a false doctrine that states that all the bishops of the Catholic Church are successors of the apostles. And if there's any scripture that the Roman Catholic Church would use, it would be Matthew 16:18, where they believe that Jesus founded his church on the apostle Peter. And I'm sure you're familiar with that verse where mm-hmm. Jesus has just asked the apostles, his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, it was divinely revealed from heaven as to who Jesus is. And so then Jesus says, Peter, upon this, this rock, I will build my church. Well, what did Peter just do? He made a profession of faith that was revealed to him by the Father in heaven, and Jesus said, it's upon this rock I will build my church, which means that anyone else that joins the church of Jesus Christ must make that same profession of faith. And so we know that Jesus wasn't building his church on Peter, a fallible man, because a few moments later, Jesus said, before I build my church, I must first go to Jerusalem to die for my church. So what did Peter do? He said, Lord, Lord, may it never be. And so Peter is calling Jesus Lord, but then he's soundly rebuking him because Jesus knew he had to go to the cross to die for his church. So what does Jesus do next? He says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, you are a mouthpiece of the devil. You have in mind the things of men rather than the things of God. So clearly this is not a man that Jesus would build his church on, one that he has to rebuke soundly and call him the mouthpiece of the devil. We know that Peter was a fallible man because in Galatians chapter 2, he was leading people into hypocrisy. He was... In fact, Paul had to rebuke him because he wasn't acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that infallibility is when a person, anything he says regarding faith and morals is absolute truth. And so here you see Paul rebuking him because he wasn't acting in line with the truth of the gospel, which is, according to the Bible the body of truth that we know as the faith. So he wasn't acting in line with the faith of Christians, and Paul had to rebuke him, proving that he was a fallible man. So, again, we're seeing that if you look at the Roman Catholic religion through the lens of Scripture, you will find that it is a corrupt religion with a lot of false teaching, and I'm thankful for a program like yours that will challenge Roman Catholics to look at the scriptures as their supreme authority for truth, and then they will find out that their church is indeed leading them down the wide road to destruction. Yeah, yeah, boy. 
Um, was Peter ever in Rome? Do we know that? Not according to the Bible. No, he was never in Rome if you look to the scriptures as your supreme authority. So, again, the Roman Catholic religion would dare to say that his bones are buried underneath St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, but there's no indication that he ever went there. When Paul was writing his letter to the Church of Rome, he listed at the end of his letter all the people that he sent greetings to, and you would think if Peter was the first pope living in Rome that Paul would have addressed him, but he's not even mentioned. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and uh, so popes are supposed to be infallible, at least when they're... Uh, and this, this gets a little tricky, too. They, the Roman Catholics will claim that the popes are infallible when they're speaking ex cathedra or from the chair, but you never really know when they're speaking ex cathedra or not because they don't say, and this is from the Lord or anything like that. Um, what types of things have popes done in the past uh, that show that they are, in fact, infallible? Perhaps like flip-flopping on various doctrines, coming up with doctrines, changing them, uh, um, those types of things. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess a good example is how popes reacted to the Joan, to Joan of Arc. There was a pope who confirmed her as a heretic and burned her at the stake in 1431. Later on, there was a pope who revoked her condemnation 24 years later. And then there was another pope who, who exalted her to sainthood in 1920. And so you look at all of three of these popes, and they all had different opinions of Joan of Arc. Was she a heretic or a saint? Was she deserving of being burned at the stake or exalted to sainthood? And then you have another pope, Pope John XXII, who condemned papal infallibility as the work of the devil. And so if that pope was infallible, here he is condemning papal infallibility. And oh. so the Catholics really have a problem with papal infallibility. The only infallible source for truth that we have on this earth today is the Word of God, the Bible. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading that um, there was discrepancies on several popes uh, concerning uh, abortion, whether or not ending the life of the child was acceptable. Um, let's see. Yeah, for example, what? Pope Gregory the Thirteenth said that it was not murder to abort an embryo of less than 40 days, but then his successor, Pope Sixtus V, disagreed and made excommunication the penalty. Um, then there was Pope Gregory the Fourteenth, who reverses this, making uh, a 40-day abortion not punishable. And then in 1869, we have Pope Pius IX decreeing that killing an embryo, embryo was murder and uh, decreeing that excommunication was the penalty. So, uh, and that's a, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Killing a, a young child in the womb, um, you would think of all things to say, Pope, surely he was speaking ex cathedra. I would imagine that would be the time. Uh, yeah, they really have some serious problems if you look at church history. And um, the papacy has been shown to be corrupt, even through Roman Catholic authors. And so um, 
the, the bottom line is that the papacy is not even biblical. You know, when Paul went out establishing churches, he established churches with a plurality of elders, such that each elder in the church had equal authority to lead and direct the church as under-shepherds to the head of the church, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was through this um, neglect of the plurality of elders that we had one elder rising to a supreme position over the other elders in the church. And then the next thing you knew, you had different provinces of churches coming together to elect one bishop that oversaw all the churches in their province. And then when you had five provinces in the second, third, and fourth century, they all got together and said, we need one man to rule over the entire church. And so out of those five provinces, they chose the Bishop of Rome to be the head over all the church. And this occurred in 596. So the first pope that really had supreme jurisdiction and control over the other churches was Pope Gregory I. Prior to that, you had bishops of five different provinces having sovereign autonomy over their own churches in their province. So when you look at this papacy, we know it's unbiblical because we don't find it in the Bible for num number one. But number mm -hmm. two, the papacy is not listed in the authority structure of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. If there was a pope in place, then why isn't the papacy mentioned? And if God established a papacy, why did Jesus rebuke the idea of a hierarchy to rule over the church in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 26? Right. And why did the disciples continue to debate who would be the greatest? I mean, if Peter was the first pope, surely that debate would not have taken place. And right. why did why did Peter refer to himself as an elder and not the supreme pontiff when he wrote his first epistle? He was a fellow elder. He was an elder among the plurality of elders over the church. And then why was James and not Peter the leader at the Jerusalem Council? If Peter was the pope, then surely he would have been the leader, but we see James was the leader in Acts chapter 15, Verses thirteen to fifteen. Right, right. Those are some good points. A few of those I, I have I've never heard. Also, another one: uh, Why in First and Second Timothy, where uh, Paul is giving instruction to Timothy, uh, basically a young pastor, uh, about how to um, well be a good shepherd of his flock, we don't see anything about the papacy in there. Nothing about apostolic uh, um, um, succession. No, we don't. In fact, out of this false doctrine of the papacy, then you had infallibility creep in. And by the way, that wasn't established until 1870 at Vatican Council I, where the bishops got together and declared the Pope to be infallible. So you have all these ungodly traditions that are really blinding Catholics from the truth of the Gospel. The Catholics will not believe anything unless the Pope says it. And so... Again, you have this cultic characteristic that you're following one man who gets to make up stuff as he goes along and not be checked by the Word of God to find out if indeed he is speaking the truth. In fact, um, Michael, I don't know if you're aware, but 
during the Counter-Reformation period because so many people were reading the scriptures and finding that they were deceived and leaving the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church actually banned the Bible. They put it on a list of forbidden books, so any Catholic that had a Bible in their possession could not have their sins forgiven until they returned the Bible to the Church. Now, why would a quote-unquote Christian Church ban the Bible? Why wouldn't they encourage people to read the Bible? Well, the answer is found in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. It's there that Jesus said, A true disciple of mine will abide in my word, then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Free from what? Well, free from religious deception, free from the power of sin. So by reading the word of God, these Protestants were finding the truth, and they were being set free from religious deception, from religious captivity. You know, there's a verse that Paul writes in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. He said, those in opposition to the Bible, we are to pray for them, that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they can escape the snare of the devil who holds them captive to do his will. And so these yeah. poor Catholics are held captive by the devil to do the devil's will because they do not know the truth. And so that's why it's so important that we witness to Roman Catholics, that we proclaim the Word of God to them. You know, the Word of God is called the imperishable seed that brings forth life. And if we don't share the Word of God with Catholics, they have no hope of ever being born again. Mm. Yeah, boy, amen, amen. I guess another thing I, uh, I suppose we should add is, is if apostolic, Ref- I want to say apostolic reformation, apostolic succession, um, is something that is that important to God, we should see some explicit mentions of it in the scriptures. I would, I would think, um, but but they're simply not there. Um, you know, the closest thing we see to that is the Great Commission where Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me, now go. Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And so as the twelve apostles went out, they were to make disciples. And how did they make disciples? Teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. And so if a Catholic is listening to this, one of the commands is given in John 4.24, where God seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. So if you're worshiping God in a false religion, you need to come out of that false religion so that you can worship God in spirit and in truth. Obey the commands of Christ. The first command was repent and believe the gospel. Catholics need to do that in order to become a disciple of Christ. But we see no mention of apostolic succession all we see is disciple-making, and that comes from teaching the Word of God and then baptizing those who believe it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. Amen. Uh, what, what does the Scripture say as far as tradition goes? Uh, we have several Scriptures, such as like Matthew uh, 15, verses 3 through 6, uh, and several others where uh, Jesus... Um, and also Paul specifically uh, addressed this idea of tradition, uh, and they don't speak favorably about it. Well, you're right. In fact, 
there's only three places in all of Scripture that speaks positively about tradition. And we mentioned a couple of those traditions that had already been taught by the Apostle, already been handed down. But the rest of the times you see the mention of tradition, it's always done in a negative sense. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.8 said that we are not to hold on to the traditions of men, to be held captive by them. And then Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, saying, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. You are experts of setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition, thus invalidating the Word of God. And so, Michael, this is what the Catholic Church has done, the same thing the Pharisees did. They introduced man-made religious traditions, and in doing so, they nullified the very Word of God, invalidated the Word of God, and in this case, they also nullified the Gospel. They've added to the Gospel of Christ with their traditions, and so the Gospel of the Roman Catholic religion is a false Gospel. And I don't say that out of my opinion. I look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1. He said, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, comes teaching another gospel, they are to be accursed. And so we see the reason he gave that stern warning is because the Judaizers came into town who believed in the death and resurrection of Christ, but they said, if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe, but you need to be circumcised. What did Paul say? Let's have unity with these people since they already believe in Jesus. He said, no, they're preaching another gospel. They are to be condemned because they added one requirement to the gospel of grace. Well, when you look at the Roman Catholic gospel, they're condemned seven times over because not only do you have to have faith, but you have to be baptized receive the sacraments, attend the weekly sacrifice of the Mass, obey the law, do good works, participate in indulgences, and then after all of that is said and done, you have to go through a purifying fire. This is another gospel. It is a gospel condemned by Galatians chapter 1, and this is why we need to rescue the precious souls of Roman Catholicism out from their false religion, and the only way we can do that is to proclaim the true gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Mm. Amen. Amen. So so basically what we have here, uh, it looks to me like there's about three good scriptures uh, in the Bible that seem to suggest that tradition is a good thing. And, and those were, again, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, and also 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. But what you see in those verses is uh, this concept of, of uh, these traditions were delivered via the apostles and Christ alone um, or as well I should say but we see in Matthew chapter 15 verses 3 through 6 where Christ uh, rebukes the Pharisees for not knowing the word of God Um, it's funny he, he corrects them 
by using scripture. And we see in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, the same type of thing. And then Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, again, speaking against tradition. So I guess what we could take from that is uh, tradition is good as long as it fits with the Word of God. It's not contradicting the Word of God. Um, and it's something that comes from Christ or the apostles. Where we start getting messed up is when we start bringing in our own traditions, uh, especially when they contradict the Word of God. Um, and like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I, I think it's it's very important to note that the apostles, they all wanted their teachings to be subject to uh, the Word of God. Like in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They, they searched the scriptures to find out whether or not what the apostles were saying is true. And uh, yeah, we see throughout the, the New Testament, the apostles wanted just that. They subjected themselves to the scriptures that is so true, Michael. Well, well summarized. Um, one of the things that we probably ought to bring up is that at the Council of Trent, which we know is the Counter-Reformation, when Rome was trying to plug the hole whereby everybody was escaping under the power of God's Word, they said this in the fourth session of the Council of Trent, to check unbridled spirits no one relying on his own judgment shall presume to interpret the scriptures contrary to Holy Mother the Church. Those who act contrary shall be punished in accordance with the penalties prescribed by the law. And so the Roman Catholic Church said each individual cannot interpret the Word of God on their own through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, but they must listen to the teaching, the bishops of the church, in order to understand the Word of God accurately. And, Michael, we know that the only two ingredients necessary for being born again are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The two act together to bring forth life. And then once a person is born of the Spirit of God, then he will begin following Christ, abiding in His Word, and the Spirit of God will apply the Word of God to their hearts. And so it is the Spirit of Truth that leads all people into the Spirit of Truth, if they are willing. But the Roman Catholic religion forbids that, saying that, no, you can't interpret the Word on your own. You have to submit to the authority of the Roman Catholic bishops. And that's why Catholics are blinded by their religion. I believe that the most powerful tool Satan uses to blind the minds of unbelievers from the light of the gospel is religious tradition and religious pride. If anyone has ever witnessed to a Catholic, they know how pride, how proud they are of their religion. And so it's hard to get through a stubbornly proud heart. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can penetrate the heart of a prideful person we know from Scripture that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So anyone who wants to be saved must submit themselves to the spirit of truth, and only then, with humility, can they be led into all truth. 
Amen. Amen. And so, friends, uh, we encourage you to do just that. Um, if anybody out there is a Roman Catholic who's listening today, we urge you, we beg you to search the scriptures. You know, read the New Testament uh, with an open mind and open heart. Read it as if you did not understand Catholic doctrine and, and find out, does the, does the New Testament actually teach anything that you find in the Roman Catholic faith? It doesn't. Um, and so, yeah, we urge you to do that and um, trust in Christ and trust in him alone for your salvation. Um, friends, also, uh, if you'd like some more information, again, this is Mike Gendron, uh, his ministry, Proclaiming the Gospel, uh, website, proclaimingthegospel.org. On his website, it is, it is a wealth of really good information about Ro Roman Catholicism. Uh, there's lots of articles, blog posts. Uh, there are audio messages that you can listen to, uh, e-books that you can look at, uh, videos you can watch, um, there's just so much there. And then, of course, there is a store uh, with many different tracks and different books that you can purchase on this subject. Uh, I would urge you guys to check that out as well. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, Michael, it's a, a pleasure to come on and talk about the gospel of Christ and the supreme authority that we have in God's Word. And if I could just uh, close with one quote from... Martin Luther, which is one that I'm sure you're familiar with, Michael. He mm -hmm. said, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as day they have frequently erred and contradicted each other, unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture, I cannot and will not retract. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. Mm. And that's Amen. where we all need to stand. We need to stand on the truth of God's Word and don't yes. let anyone toss you to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Stand on the Word of God. Test every teaching with Scripture. So thanks for having me, Michael, and maybe we can do it again sometime in the future. Okay, friends. Well, there you have it. Uh, do we trust in tradition or do we trust in the Word of God alone. If you trust in tradition, well, let me ask you this, why? Why would we trust in tradition? And whose tradition? How do we test those traditions? Uh, do we test them simply by saying, well, uh, they, they came via apostolic succession? Okay, why do we trust? Why should we trust apostolic su succession? Uh, does the scriptures talk about apostolic succession? Should we trust everything blindly simply because apostolic succession? See what I'm, I'm, I'm saying, friends? If we want to trust in tradition, how do we know whose tradition we should trust in? Should we trust in the Mormon's tradition? Should we trust in tradition that we have heard via uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses? Guys, there's so many different traditions out there. There's so many people who, who are competing for uh, uh, us to listen to their tradition. Why should we trust in the tradition of the Catholic Church? We have no reason. The only reason to trust in that tradition is 
uh, as the Catholic Church would proclaim, apostolic succession. But there's no reason to put any faith in apostolic succession. And furthermore, friends, uh, yes, I already mentioned it's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And even if it was, why should we trust that nowadays, this many generations down the row, uh, we are still somehow uh, hearing from a true vicar in the place of, sitting in the place of, instead of Christ, vicar of Christ, that's what it means. Guys, we have every reason in the world to reject the words of popes. They continuously get things wrong. Guys, if they are supposed to be actual in the place of, instead of Christ, actually Christ on earth in a sense, then we should expect that everything they say is correct. Certainly, at the very least, everything that they say concerning doctrine. Uh, Of course, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, whenever uh, a pope says something that is proven wrong or obviously is a contradiction with another pope, well, the quick answer is, oh, well, they weren't speaking ex cathedra. Well, show me an instance where a pope actually says, hey, by the way, I am speaking ex cathedra. Uh, It seems to me like if a man claiming to be the uh, vicar of Christ, Christ on earth in a sense, uh, speaks on anything concerning doctrine, then that should basically be inspired of God. Right? I mean, am am I stretching here? But we have popes that continuously uh, backtrack. They make one papal uh, decree. They say this or that about a doctrine. And then another pope, maybe one pope down the line, maybe several popes down the line, retracts that and says, no, that's actually not the case. And we see that over and over and over. Entire books have been written on this subject of popes uh, and, and papal blunders. There is a podcast, God willing, coming up in the near future uh, where I will interview somebody on this topic. And I want to interview somebody who is an expert in this area and talk about just how many papal blunders there are out there. And there are so many. That's why there are entire books written on this subject. Uh, Again, guys, there is really no reason why anybody should trust in the words of uh, uh, the Pope or the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. There's no reason why. We have in our hands the very Word of God. And it even says, All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Guys, those areas right there, that covers the whole gamut. I mean, that really does. There's no reason to add to it. So again, uh, it, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And here we go. That the man of God may be perfect. Guys, I, I, there is no other way around this. There's nothing you can say at this point. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
just say la. Think on that. Dwell on that for a second. Do we really need these traditions? Do we really need all these extra doctrines that have been pushed on us via the Roman Catholic faith? No, guys, we don't. To all my friends, uh, all my Roman Catholic friends out there, guys, I urge you, I beg you, look at the Bible. Read the New Testament again. Read it again. Tell me, do you see Roman Catholic doctrine in there? It's not there. When you read the New Testament and just read it with the eyes of a child, okay? Read it as it is. What you're going to see is that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not through sacraments. It's not through anything we can do. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. As you look through the scriptures, as you look through the New Testament, uh, and the Old Testament for that matter, but I figure it's easier to recommend just reading the New Testament. Read through it, and you will find, and certainly in the Old Testament too, you will not find anything pointing towards the Roman Catholic Church. Guys, we're talking about a church that, according to the Council of Trent, and according to so many popes along the line, if we're not part of this quote-unquote Holy Mother Church, we're not even saved. And there's not a word about it in the scriptures. Did God miss something? Did he forget something? Was he preoccupied the day that his scriptures were written? Uh, and completely missed out on the fact that, oh yeah, whoops, I forgot to point out that guys, you need to follow the traditions and uh, uh, popes of my Holy Roman Catholic Church that I will base out of the Vatican and will have an whole, a whole army of bishops and priests and cardinals and they will all dress up in their costumes and they will have their relics and they will pray to their saints and don't forget you must pray your rosary and all of these things all of these works they're not there guys I'm sorry I went off the handle a little bit there uh, but you, you gotta understand I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and I understand this stuff from the inside I know how it works it's vain repetition, as Christ says. You say the same prayers over and over and over. Repetition, repetition, repetition. And for nothing. There is no relationship with Christ. You confess your sins to a priest in a box. And then he tells you for penance, if you're if you're not aware of what that means, penance is kind of like your punishment straight from God. You got to do this, and then you're you're made good. Okay, uh, your penance is to say whatever fifty hail marys, uh, and and do this or that. You know, go do a couple good deeds, something along those lines. There's always different ideas on penance. It really depends on your priest, but it almost always includes going through the rosary X amount of times and then something else. Might even include a, a tithe, a donation to the Roman Catholic Church. Whatever the case, none of that is found in the scriptures. No, we're to, to confess our sins to God 
and to God alone. We pray to God and God alone. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to saints. And we certainly don't go to some place called purgatory to burn off our sins. Again, guys, the scriptures don't say anything about purgatory. Not a single thing. All of these doctrines, guys, they come from the minds of men, not from God. And so to all of my Catholic friends who are listening, you can be saved simply by trusting in Christ, not by doing any special works. And when you are saved, uh, that's it, my friends. You are saved. You are justified. The doctrine of justification. You are justified at that moment when you trust in Christ alone to save you from your sins, not in your works, not in showing up to Mass every Sunday, not in fulfilling all of the sacraments. You trust in Christ alone for these things, just as the New Testament describes. Again, please read the New Testament and see that what I am saying is so. Just read it. You can know that you're saved. You can know it for a fact. There is no question in your mind. There is no wondering, oh my, what did I just do? Now I'm definitely going to go to hell. No, you can know it. You will be justified at that moment when you trust in Christ alone, not in a church, not in how many rosaries you pray, not in anything but Christ alone. You will know it at that moment you are saved as it is spoken about in the scriptures. And then, at that moment, you will start a process called sanctification. And sanctification is that process where God cleans you up, convicts you of your sins, and cleans you up and helps you live a more righteous, sinless life. None of us are perfect. We are saved by grace. Again, friends, just so I can say it again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Dwell on that, friends. Pray on that. I beg you, read the New Testament again with child's eyes. Read it as a child without your preconceived Catholic ideas and see where the scriptures lead you. I love you guys. I love you guys enough to tell you the truth. If anybody out there has any questions, please contact me. I would love to talk to you about this. I am dead serious. This is a very uh, serious matter. Okay. So, uh, yes, contact me, go to my website, youthapologeticstraining.com. You can contact me there. You can email me, Mike at youthapologeticstraining.com or you can Facebook me, whatever you want to do. Uh, and if you really want to talk, uh, if you'd prefer to talk on the phone, let me know. And that is also an option. I want to help you guys. I love you enough to tell you the truth. All right, I'm going to stop here. Uh, friends, if you like these podcasts, uh, if this is your first time around with Youth Apologetics Training, 
I have uh, hundreds of podcasts on my website. If you want to go there, youthapologeticstraining.com and click on the podcast archive link. Uh, There is more podcasts there than you'll know what to do with. Uh, All over the the subjects of worldviews, apologetics, creation, evolution, cults, cult research, uh, even some podcasts on the occult. So um, it's all there, Bible difficulties, everything. Uh, And I'm adding to them every week. So uh, they're all free and they're all for you guys. And so with that, guys, I love you and I'll talk to you next week.